And all God's people said, Amen. I love that. You can be seated. Thank you so much. I wrote an article, this probably almost six months ago, about that song. I don't know if you remember it because uh, that's one of the choruses I think uh, we as a church love and we sing with, uh, with passion and belief. We really do believe and understand that we are the body of Christ. Amen? You know, Robbie read an interesting... Pat- By the way, your Bible's open to Ephesians 5. If you look in your Bibles, I mean in your bulletins, you'll see kind of the title of the, the message today and you might can make the connections in Ephesians 5 to what Robbie read about the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And, and you know the church at Corinth had... Ton- I'm, I'm in Ephesians 5. By the way, I'm, I'm just talking about the church at Corinth. But the church at Corinth had a lot of problems in the church. So, um, one of those was, uh, was believers suing one another. And if you notice what it says there, I won't repeat all of it, but Paul asks, is, is there not somebody that that's, uh, has, has a reputation in the church that can't deal with this? Is there not a mature believer that can handle some kind of division between two believers? Uh, or can't you just let it go for the sake of love? You know, that kind of thing. And why do you take it to the pagan court? So Paul scathes them. By the way, it is unbiblical to sue a brother in Christ. It is unbiblical to do that. And uh, just quick, ask the question, how can pagans decide what between believers? What an act of hypocrisy when we do that. But then the whole passage ends with, it talks about, uh, but this, you know, the homosexuals, the liars, the immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now I paraphrase that, but then the next verse says, 1 Corinthians 6, 11, but such were some of you, but you were washed. Amen? You were cleansed. Well, today we're looking at Ephesians 5 and we are talking about the marriage, the, the covenant of marriage, earthly marriage, the covenant that God designed in the book of Genesis between Adam and Eve. We are talking about that, but more ultimately in the passage today is what the Apostle Paul says about the church. And just as a husband has a bride, the Bible's going to tell us that Christ has a bride, and that bride is the church. You know, if you ever pay attention to to, uh, to creeds, like the Apostles' Creed, uh, one of the first things the creed says, a lot of the creeds do this, but that there's one holy, and, and you... We don't want to say Catholic because we think we're talking about Catholicism. But the word Catholic means universal. So a lot of the creeds say one holy universal church. That is a profound statement. Now, by the way, that wasn't written by the apostles. The apostles' creed was written two or three hundred years after the apostles. But it's a commitment. It's a, it's a creed based on the teachings of the apostles, which were the foundation of the early church. So anyway... But one, now think about this, one holy universal church 
Is that true? And yes, it is true. Because Jesus Christ has washed us from our sins. Amen? That's how it happens. With your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 5, and and though the passage begins in verse 22, I want to I roll back up to verse... Uh, let's look at verse 15. We'll start at verse 15. Ephesians 5, beginning at verse... 15. All this is worthy of a sermon. I want you to know that when I read through this, I could stop at every verse and and pontificate and chase a rabbit or two, and I'll try not to do that this morning. But this is God's Word, and it is profound. But I want you to be thinking about how is it that Christ takes sinners and makes us each and corporately a virgin bride. How how does that happen? You know, spiritually, we don't keep our virginity spiritually for a day. How is it that God looks at us as though we're the virgin bride of Christ? Every person that's ever been saved is spotless because of what Christ has done. That's profound. Before we get there, let me pick up to verse 15. It says, look carefully then how you walk. That's a very significant doctrine in, in the book of Ephesians is walking. That means manner of life. He mentions it several times in the book. of Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time. And, and it does have the idea of, uh, some translations say, redeeming the time. Uh, New, New King James, I think, translates this verse that way, redeeming the time. And it, and it does have the, the words there, it does have the idea of, of purchase, but, but it's not that you can buy time, but it's, it's really all, it's, it's an economic term. If time is money, then you need to make the best use of your time. Well, time is kingdom work. You need to make the best use of your time. That's what Paul's referring to. So he says, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. And we know based on James, we know based on the words of Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, that life is brief. The brevity of life. James says it's like a puff of air of breath. It just comes and goes. Life passes so fast, so swiftly. And I've been here long enough where I can say, for those of you who've been here the whole time I've been here, those 23 and a half years have blown by. They just have zipped by. And it is true, the older you get, the faster they go. Because it's a lower denomination statistically. When you're 20, a year's a long time it seems like. But when you're 60, it zips by like it's three months, so to speak. That's how the math works. But it goes by quickly. But even if you live to be 100, life is brief compared to eternity. And that's what we're preparing for. As I mentioned, uh, in my class we're talking about worship. We're talking about worship and music and worship and how you worship and what the Bible says about worship. Does God order worship and all that? And 
you know, one of the things we're looking at is at the, at the end of the book in Revelation, it says His servants will worship Him. Well, if that's what we're going to be doing in heaven, that's not the only thing we're going to be doing, but it does say several times His servants, a couple of times it says, and His slaves will worship Him. Well, if we're going to be doing that there, then we need to be doing this here. We need to be making it a priority to worship and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. Making the best use of your time because the days are evil. They're, they're brief, so we need to make opportunity. I, you know, I, again, let me just say as a pastor, it grieves my soul. It really does at, at lost opportunities. It really does. I, um, you know, I, I'm, whether I'm here two more years or five more years, you're just thinking about all the opportunities of ministry not only that I've missed, but that have gone behind me, that they're past. Those opportunities are gone to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And I can't call back that time. Now we can think about it. I can remember a lot of things. But I can't gain that time back. Neither can you. It's a, it's a sobering thought that every moment of every day passes us by. And we're preparing for eternity. But we don't get that time back. So we need to be good stewards of our time. Then Paul says this profound statement that if we did a survey in, in the church today, I don't know how many could honestly answer this. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, are we talking about your, your specific call? Or are we talking about just in general, the will of God as a sovereign Lord? Now, many of us probably could pin something down about God's sovereign will. You know, he, He's sovereign and one day He's going to return and hold people accountable for sin. But what is, what is the will of the Lord for you? What, what are you doing? If you're being wise about your time and serving Him, what... What is the will of the Lord for you? What, what, what would you write down? Is, is God's will for you right now? Um, as part of being part of the body of Christ, that's where Paul's going with this. So he takes it a step further. So you don't need to be, you don't need to be foolish, but we need to understand what God's will is. Of course, you won't know that unless you know the Bible. And then he says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery but be filled with the Spirit. And just a quick little doctrinal statement thought there. There's, there's one ceiling. Now, now again, we need to understand this. When you're saved, the Bible says, it says this in Ephesians, it says this in Colossians, that when you're saved, you're sealed by the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, it says it in 1 Corinthians. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. Matter of fact, it uses the word in the original language of, a, of an engagement ring or of a down payment. So when you're saved, the Spirit indwells you. He seals you. So the Spirit abides. He tabernacles inside of you. That's how we say Christ is in me, the hope of glory. He's in me because the Holy Spirit, His Spirit He sent, indwells me. He seals me. That's one time. He seals me one time. But in my Christian life, I'm filled all the time. Or I'm, I'm not filled all the time. So 
the word feeling there is present tense. It's ongoing. And you can't just do it one time. You have to do it over. And, and literally scholars tell you this. If you were reading this verse and, and you were a Greek scholar, you could say it says, be, be being kept filled with the Spirit. It's something that's an ongoing process and our goal in life is not to be full of self, but to be full of the Holy Spirit. And of course, he gives us a nice little picture there. He says, you, many of us know what it's like to be controlled by alcohol in, in a former life. And uh, so that control, something outside of us controlled us. So don't be drunk with wine. That's debauchery. But be you filled with the Spirit. So we're controlled by something that's outside of us and is more powerful than us and takes hold of us and leads us. And so, in really being filled with the Spirit, it, um, you know, one of the best illustrations I've heard about this is you have, you have to be being kept filled with the Spirit. And when you do that, you don't walk in the flesh, you walk in the Spirit. I mean, it's a process. But one of the best illustrations I've heard about being filled with the Spirit, again, word pictures help me, is one of the scholars I was reading one time said it's like an Alka-Seltzer in a cup of water. Plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Right? And until that Alka-Seltzer drops in that water and then that fizz fills the glass, right? Now it doesn't change the water, you're still you, but that water now is full of Alka-Seltzer. That's an idea, that's a great word picture of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit is now in you, and then the Spirit controls you. Many of you have studied with me, one of the things we've learned is like wind in a sail. To be filled with the Spirit is like the Spirit of God fills us, like blowing the wind in a sail, and it pushes us along, it directs us, it guides us. The Bible even says it's like putting a glove on, and you're the glove. And God fills you with the Spirit and moves you. Uh, one of the other words the Bible uses for being filled with the Spirit is being endued with the Spirit. Is that the Spirit takes us, and that's what that word means, endued, is to put a hand in the glove. So God leads us. He fills us. And it's not us, it's Him in us doing the work. So Paul says, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And But when we're filled with the Spirit, that's when we don't do fleshly things. Uh, Paul argues that and explains that in, in Galatians 5. Uh, the, the flesh and the Spirit, they're diametrically opposed to one another. And so the more we surrender to the work of the Holy Spirit that has sealed us for our salvation, the more we let Him have His way and will in us, the less worldly we're going to be. So he says, do not get drunk with wine, which is debauchery, be filled with the Spirit. Here's something that tells us about people that are spiritual. Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your hearts. Now folks, one of the signs of being Spirit-filled is having a song in your heart. It doesn't say you sing with great... Uh, you're not perfect. You don't, it doesn't say you have a great pitch. It doesn't say... You're a great. Vo- it's just saying we have a song in our heart. We have something to sing about, and we we're learning about music a little bit today. And you find those those different kind of music even in the Old Testament. But it mentions the Book of Psalms. But we sing with to one another. This and it says that addressing one another. This is more than singing in the shower. I was singing in my office this morning before anybody was here. 
And uh, I wail when nobody's here, you know. But this is, this is where we're addressing. This is one of the things we do when we worship. We sing to one another, songs, hymns. So we're addressing one another. So it's not private music. It's, it's corporate. We're singing with each other. Then he says, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. I remember years ago, I went on a mission trip, and I've shared this numerous times, but this, I was young. I was in high school when we did this, but I do remember our theme. The guy leading our Bible study gave us the theme of joy, but he broke it down as an acrostic. Joy was Jesus, others, and you. I like that. And so, Paul's saying here that that we're submissive to one another. Now, that's that's not defining the marriage relationship as such, but as far as believers in the church, we always consider others better than ourselves. That's what Paul says in Romans. We want to consider everybody better than ourselves. But we don't do that most of the time. Most of the time, we're on the inside of us, we think we're better than everybody else. There's, there's arrogance on the inside of us many times. But Paul says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Well, let's move on. And you know, How in the world is it that, that he makes us a holy church, a, a, a spotless church? A spotless bride with a gown that is not stained and it's, it's pure white. How does He do that? And we know He does it because I've read the book of Revelation, chapter 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb, and we're given white robes, clean and pure, it says. So we know that in heaven we get there because we're, no sin's imputed to us. It's all been imputed to Christ and He paid our price. So in the midst of this marriage passage, and this is the longest marriage passage in the New Testament, listen to what God's Word says. It says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. By the way, submission is not man's plan. It's God's plan. And you find it in the book of Genesis. Eve submitted to Adam. And when she didn't, it led to the fall. So the the idea of submit, it's not a nasty word. I'll tell you this, Jesus submitted to the Father. It's the same word. So if Jesus submits to His Father, then He tells me, tells wives to submit to their husbands, there shouldn't be a problem, especially when the husband's Christ-like. But let's move on. Of course, we know husbands love verse 22. Don't they? They'll quote that verse, won't they? But they won't quote verse 23. We're going to talk about this Wednesday night. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is head of the church, he's the church, his body, and is himself the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their every to their husbands and everything. Verse twenty five is really the, is what men don't want to talk about. Husbands, uh, love, so as Christ is head of the church, the husband's the head of the home. Okay, that's a great picture, but there's a massive responsibility. Uh, As Christ is the Savior of the church, husbands are to be in their homes. Incredible thought. That's massive responsibility. He says, um, Husbands, verse 25, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. He lost His life for the church. Now, every time I talk about marriage, 
for some reason Diane and I start fussing. If I preach on it or teach on it, I'm not kidding. The devil, I guess it's the devil, maybe my sin nature. But it seems like every time I want to talk about or I do marriage counseling, premarital counseling, Diane and I will be fussing the whole time. But it's really her fault, but we'll move on. But, but husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And it says, and He gave Himself up for her. You lose yourself. You love your wife so much, you lose yourself in loving her. And so, the Bible's comparing Christ's substitutionary, sacrificial love that purchased us from sin as the kind of love a husband has for his wife. Now, I don't know a lot, but I know one thing. If a husband will live like that, submission won't be a problem. If you have a Christ-like husband, submission will come willingly. But when the husband is some brute, some vile, some headstrong, arrogant, rebellious, macho pig, it's hard to submit. Naturally so. But the Bible says we don't submit because he's worthy, women, wives. We submit because the Bible says so. So whether he's Christ-like or not, it is a command. But husbands are to, Christian husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And then this is, here's our passage, right? I said all that to say this. It says that, that he might... So why did he, why did he love the church and surrender to the wife? Why did Christ love the church so much and surrender and give his life? This is why he did it. The passage in 1 Corinthians 6 talks about this, sanctifying and, and justifying us. It says that He might sanctify her. Uh, I was reading where in Jewish weddings, uh, now the, I don't know contemporary Jewish weddings, I was reading something about in like the 1st and 2nd century when when Paul and, and the apostles were, were, were alive and... At, says that when a Jewish husband, when they would exchange vows and, and rings, that when the rings were exchanged, the husband would say to the bride, when he gave her the ring, he would say something like, you are now sanctified to me. And of course, if you're looking at the Bible there, that's right out of the text, he might sanctify her. Christ did it to sanctify her. Well, the word sanctify is, is the word set apart, right? So just, um, you know, when a ring is supposed to stand for something, you know, uh, if, if you're a single man and, and you're somewhere and, and you, you see a woman with a ring on her, a wedding ring on her wedding finger, what does that mean? That's right, she's set apart. You have no place, I mean, you don't need to be pursuing her. She belongs to another covenant. She, she belongs, she has a husband. And so it sanctifies her. Uh, one of the books we recommend a lot in marriage is sacred marriage. A sacred marriage is one that's been set apart. Every marriage, Christian marriage, is sacred and set apart because we're following the example of Christ. But He sanctifies the church. He sets the church apart. Which is interesting because the very word church means a called out or a set apart assembly. We are a called out assembly as a body and as individuals. 
and we are as being called by Christ. So, so every one of us that's, that's a Christian in, in our own way, we're married to Christ. He's the groom, we're the bride, and we've been set apart by Him to be a virgin bride. Uh, I think James, the you know, brother of Jesus, half-brother of Jesus, kind of connects this when he, he talks about, and this is an early book, you're talking about this, James was written 12, 14 years after Christ ascended, it's early book. So James, the half-brother of Jesus, talks about being worldly. And he calls believers who are worldly adulterers and adulteresses because you're not being faithful to the Lord who married you, who you married, who you surrender to in a covenant, much like marriage. By the way, this is, goes back to what Paul's already says. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, right? Because we're, we're one flesh with Christ. Now think... Again, this is exactly what the Bible says. Every one of us that's saved, Christ is our groom. We are His bride. Every one of us. And we are intimately with Christ. We are His by covenant. And when we step out on Him, it is spiritual adultery. Now the Bible teaches that in more than the book of James. So it's calling us for a... a set. If we're set apart, we need to be living like we are. This is why even the physical world, where all of, even pagans know, I'm talking about the physical world now, that they know most pagans realize adultery and is, is wrong and fornication is wrong outside of marriage because there's a, there's a sacredness even for lost people about marriage. But anyway, so he says that he might sanctify her having cleansed her. How did he do it? By the washing of the water with the Word. Now I will say that there is probably a a hint of the purification process for the priests. And you know, you hear about the pools in and around Jerusalem, like the pool of Siloam. Several of those places were for cleansing. And and the priest, many times, it's according to which priest you were in the line of the Levites, but many times you would be purified. That means you would disrobe you would walk through the water, move through the water, it would cleanse you, you would come out of the water and put on a fresh gown. Now you're able, you would be, you would be sanctified, you would be set apart, you'd be purified. So when he says the washing of water by the Word, how we're cleansed is by the convicting power of God's Word. He washes us with His Word. This goes back... Uh, since we're here, take your Bibles and go to Hebrews, okay? Just real quick, y'all know this verse. Go to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And this is one of those uh, verses about the power of God's Word, but I want you to see uh, what, what the Word can do. Hebrews 4. I won't pick up at verse 9 because we're thinking Hebrewish. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Comparing that to the Jews. 
For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. Then it goes to the next one. So that no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed. That word exposed is our word. Now, I think I'm right about this. Don't correct me publicly. I think it's the word, our English word for tracheotomy. So when somebody's helpless like that and have their heads pulled back and, and going to have a tracheotomy cut, that's the, so you're helpless. And, and, and so the word just, nothing can hide. So God takes His word and He washes us with His word. So this goes back to why the Bible has, is, has such a high standing in the church. Um, we're people of the word. And that's why when even to this day we're struggling with this as a convention, Southern Baptists are struggling with it, Presbyterians or PCA struggling with it. There's a lot of people that are trying to redefine scriptures about sexual identity, about you know homosexuality, and 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 they're they're not letting God's words God's word speak for what it says. They're rewriting God's word. Or they're removing things. They're not mentioning what the Bible says. I've read one scholar. It just, it just really bothers me because this is a movement now. and Not big here in the South as Southern Baptists, but it is, it's, it's a little wave. Um, and what I'm trying to say is, not only are they wanting women in the pulpit, but the next wave is going to be, homosexuality is going to be accepted. They're going to present that one day if the convention holds itself together, they may do that. And it's, it's just an issue right now because they're saying that, you know, God's making exceptions, whatever. I don't want to get into all that, but they're, it's just good. they're rewriting God's Word. God's Word stands, and we need to believe it, every word that it says. I, I believe it from front to back. I believe it literally. And, and if it's an abomination, it's an abomination. I, I don't care when it happens, it's an abomination. And, and so whether it's homosexuality or lying or adultery, the Bible speaks to it, and it's, it's timeless. If it was wrong 4,000 years ago, it's wrong today. If it's a moral law, it's still wrong. And we have to trust God's Word. And, and you're going to find that more and more an issue, even in your own family. Um, your children, and, and we, we have issues sometimes with our own children. They're liberal compared to how I was, some of them, not all of them, how I was, not Bonnie, because she hears me all the time, but, but you struggle with some of that because they're listening to the world redefine what the Bible says. Let's move on. But we, we, we want, so He washes us with the water of the Word. Now, why does He do that? Now, look what He says. So, so why does, okay, well, let's stop. I got, I got, um, um, okay. Let me give you an illustration. Okay. Go 
Go, just, just, let's cash it in now. Let me just stop. Let me go then. Go to John 13. I'm going to show you how this works. He says, while you're going to John 13, I'll have to find it. So he does it, he says, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. I'll stop right there. Why does he wash her? This is Christ talking about everybody that's been saved. Why does he do it? So he can present her, me and you, everybody that's saved, ever been saved, so he can present her to himself a spotless bride. Which is interesting because in, in Jewish weddings and in our weddings, there's always the father of the bride or somebody gives the bride away. Well, in this passage, Jesus does it both. He presents the bride to Himself. He handles it all. Because He's the one doing the cleansing. So that He can present me and you to Himself spotless. There's not one black dot. There's not one crease. That God, When we meet the Father, He sees us as as perfect as Christ was. John 13, this was our theme five years ago. This is where Jesus washes their, washes their feet. John, I'm sorry, I went to the book of Acts. That's not going to work. John chapter 13. Verse 6 says, And He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? John 13, 6. So He's washing their feet. And Peter says, Hey, I should be washing... And they should have already been washing feet. We've talked about that. I, I did the Lord's Supper in somebody's home this week and, and I used this uh, incredible... And you've been there. We've talked about it. Pressure. The, Jesus comes to them and starts washing feet and they all realize they're all servants and they should have been washing each other's feet before Jesus ever... But they didn't because we're all proud and none of us would start doing that because of the pride that's in us. So... So Peter says, do you wash my feet? And Jesus said to him, what I am doing, you don't understand now. But afterwards, you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. We would all feel the same way. But Jesus answered him, if I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. So what does Peter say? Well, wash all of me. If, If my feet gives me a little share of you, wash me all of me. Wash me all. And look what Jesus said. The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet. Now, Paul says about Christ in us, how He washes us. When you and I got saved, the blood of Christ washed us clean. If we died today, we would see the Father and Son and we would be perfectly spotless before the Father and Son and Spirit. Amen? But, Are we perfectly clean and sinless? No. So every day we get our feet dirty, so to speak, according to John 13, the word picture. We don't need to take a bath, but what do we need to wash? Right. We call that daily cleansing. John talks about this in 1 John. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It doesn't mean we're not God's child. We're still God's child, but we need to be daily cleansed. But when it comes to salvation, He's washed us clean in the blood of the Lamb. And He's already given, Revelation 19 says, that we He's going to give us robes of bright, clean linen as 
at the marriage supper of the Lamb. So every one of us has a perfect bridal gown that's spotless because Christ's blood has cleansed us from our sins. So Christ has a church. Christ has a bride that He's made spotless. But that church needs daily cleansing. We need the daily cleansing and we find that out by reading what book? We find it out by reading the Word. Because the Word is what's going to continue to expose the dirtiness of our lives and tell us what needs to be washed. I just wrote down that we have distractions from the world. We have distortions to His Word. We have divisions in some church bodies. And we've departed from His work. We need the cleansing power of God's Word. Amen? Let's stand together. As His, as His spotless church... Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank You for forgiveness. Thank You for daily cleansing, what we might even call progressive sanctification, that, that yes, eternally we've been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb without the shedding of blood. There is no remission. There is no taking away of sin. But You have shed Your blood. And we have applied that to our lives and our hearts. And, but Father, daily we, we need cleansing. And so we want to be the spotless bride. We want to be the obedient bride. We want to be the submissive bride. Father, help us to be united with You. Help us to be not only join to You in salvation, but help us to be the workmen that You've called us to be. Help us to, to live the life of Christ in this world. Father, thank You that the root, the Lord Jesus Christ, is holy. So all the, all the branches that are connected to Him are holy as well. Lord, we love You and thank You for the privilege to serve You through the local church. As we leave this place, may we be very much aware of being the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Above all, help us to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in what we say and do in Jesus' name. Amen. See you this afternoon at 4 o'clock. Have a great afternoon.